Um, so we have this thing we call church. We refer to body of believers, right? We refer to the body of Christ, um, gathering of believers. Um, how often, anyone want to guess, how often did Jesus talk about church in his ministry time? Actually, he did. Twice. He uses the word church in Matthew 16, and he uses the word church again in Matthew 18. Um, and it's interesting, depending on the translation, you'll find that the term is used twice. The NRSV uses it four times, but only in those two sections. So although Jesus, the one who founded the church and brought the church to being, isn't it interesting that he only uses, uh, talks about the church twice? Hmm. So, if we know he only said about twice, but yet here we are all being the church or doing the church, might it be a good idea to understand what Jesus really meant when he talked about the church? So what I'd like to do is look at those passages. Um, but the first thing I want to do, and forgive me, chuck twice we said, what did Jesus have to say about the church? Okay. The word church is used roughly 115 times in the New Testament. I guess I really do have a small box today. Um, <clears throat> the Greek word is ekklesia. And it speaks of a gathering. I found it very interesting that it's a gathering of citizens called out of their homes into some public place. It's an assembly. And under those is an assembly of people convened at a public place of council for the purpose of deliberation. And if I don't tie this, I will kill myself. Yes. You know what comes before, before the fall? An untied shoe. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad. So the two things I want to take out here is Ecclesia talks about a gathering of, of citizens, and we're all citizens, in a public place. This, could be, this can be a public place, but so can anything outside our home, right? For the purpose of deliberating. What's deliberating? Pondering, okay. Considering. Considering. Deciding. If you, the most common use of deliberating that I'm aware of is in the judicial system where juries deliberate. Is this thing really that far from my mouth, George? It's just when you focus on So it's a gathering of people not designed to sit and listen, but a gathering of p people that come together to discuss, to look at what's being said, and to decide if what's being said is correct or incorrect. Does that make sense? Okay. Another one that got me is in a Christian sense, ecclesia is an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. 
Okay, we qualify there, right? Nothing outlandish there. But here's another one. The assembly of faithful Christians already dead and received into heaven. What's that tell us? I'm sorry? Yes. Now, what does the Bible say about what it takes to be received into heaven? To believe in Jesus. Pardon? He's your Savior. And this is where I start to fall apart, because this is what God was telling me to say today, and I don't have it in the PowerPoint, and I hope this transitioned well. But if you have your Bibles with you, and if not, there's some under the seat, and if you don't have one under the seat, they're over here, and I've got plenty up here. <laughs> okay, does anyone need one? Okay. So, John 3, <clears throat> it's the story about Nicodemus talking to Jesus. He visits Jesus at night. Jesus makes a statement in John 3, 3. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. Isn't Jesus putting that as a requirement for getting into heaven. So to fit this meaning of ecclesia, which is the assembly of faithful Christians already dead and received into heaven, isn't it a requirement to be born again? Might we want to look at that a little bit? Okay. Um, so what's being born? Jesus talked in earthly terms, so in an earthly term, what is it to be born? There you go. Thank you, Pam. I didn't think that was that hard a question. <laughs> Exit the womb. Okay. I hope this isn't too graphic, but we all know that when a baby comes out of the womb, he's still attached to his mother with an umbilical cord, right? Because up until that point, that's where the baby gets all his nourishment, everything he needs to grow to the point of exiting the womb, right? Okay, so he's born, someone cuts the umbilical cord, and what now becomes the support system for the baby? The mother, the family, can we say the world? Because the infant, without consciously knowing it, takes that, now it's a, not a physical umbilical cord, but it's still the way he gets his needs met and plugs that into the world. And think of an infant. Other than breathing, what can an infant do on his own? Make a lot of noise. Make a lot of noise, okay. <laughs> can the infant take care of any other physical needs on his own other than breathing? Can the infant feed himself? Can he clothe himself? Can he change himself? Hence, he makes noise. And what's the purpose of making noise? Get to get attention, to get the needs met, right? Mm -hmm. So we spend our life, from the time we're born, learning that the way we get our needs met is to make a ruckus. <laughs> Am I wrong? It's worked for 
<laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> but really, that's it. The infant learns from the day of birth that when I make noise, someone's going to come see. And if I can quote Bill Cosby, parents don't want justice, parents want quiet. <laughs> so the parent is going to try to do everything he can to cause the child to quit making a ruckus. Is that true? Mm -hmm. So at some age, and depends on the infant, but six months, year, year and a half, the kid starts eating on his own. At some point, the kid can actually start feeding himself and he can become more and more independent. But by that point, where has the child learned to get his needs met? And it's the world around us, right? Born of flesh. What does Jesus say in John 3? Um, And it's in here someplace. I'm just going to find it. 3-4. Three, four. Three, four. No, I'm not looking for that one. 3-6 is probably close. Humans can, re re thank you, Sally. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. What does it mean to give life from heaven? I'm sorry, Sally? Plug into God, right. Conceptually, when you were reborn, we become new creations, correct? Conceptually, what we do is we take this umbilical cord that we all have and disconnect it from the world, and we plug it into heaven. The Bible is pretty clear that God will meet all our needs, right? Now, when God's infinite wisdom... He will use people to meet our needs in the physical area. But it's not for us to depend on people to do that. It's for us to depend on God, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, if you're like me, you might have got that a while after you thought you were saved. But at this point, I probably only have it 20%, and I've been doing this for a long time. So most of us are in a situation where we have part of the umbilical cord plugged into heaven and part of it plugged into the world. Tracking with me? Yeah. Yeah. Working. Working? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Just a comment that I'm not sure is coming from the Bible, at least coming from me. Take this to God and see how it fits you. But if you still have your umbilical cord plugged into the world, that means you're expecting the world to meet a need in that area of your life. If someone comes up and meets that need for you, if you expect it, do you see it as a gift? And the answer is no. If you expect it, they may be giving you a gift from God and you look at it as it was deserved. It's just owed to me. Does that make sense? Right, entitlement. How many get aggravated when someone comes to them with a sense of entitlement? But yet, how many times do we go to someone else with an expectation of entitlement? Yeah. Do I need to get off that soapbox before I get stoned? <laughs> and I'm not talking about the 60s stone, believe me. 
Yes, that was bad. <laughs> Picking up rocks and throw them at me. I'd rather tomatoes than rocks. They hurt less, and the washing machine gets them out, but we won't go there. Okay, so this concept of born again, we, we know is critical to getting into heaven. So if Jesus and the word ecclesia or church means the gathering of people or can refer to the gathering of people that are dead and received into heaven, can it also refer to the gathering of people that are not dead yet but will be received into heaven? Can you be received into heaven if your umbilical cord is plugged solely into the world for your needs? Okay. That's food for thought. We all have areas where it is. Take it to God because he wants us to learn to depend solely on him. He will work with you individually in the areas where you need to do that, and he will not put more on you than you can bear. His word says that. puts a promise we can count on. But do that. Take it to God and see what areas of your life he still wants you to depend on him. Because according to his word, there is no area of your life where you cannot fully depend on God. Okay, back off that soapbox. So, back to Jesus and the word church. Anyone want to read for me Matthew 16, 13 through 19? It's up here. It's a bit of an eye chart. And we will take it apart verse by verse so you'll be able to see what I've got up there a bit later. But what I'm interested in is what translation you have and what it looks like, what it says. Because there's a certain couple places in here where different translations say something that appears quite different. Okay, yeah. 13 to 19. Okay. Whose translation is pretty much word for word on that one? Okay. So when Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Pretty straightforward question, right? It can be taken as if he's asking them or if he's asking what the word on the street is. How do they respond? Pretty much they tell him what the word in the street is, right? right. And it's see and they said some say John the Baptist and I always found that one interesting because John the Baptist was a contemporary of Jesus how was it possible to be one person and yet another at the same time now in my 20th century Western mindset that just you know doesn't fit but that was the answer and then they said Elijah, still others, Jeremiah of one of the prophets. Did Jesus get the answer he was looking for? No. So what's he do? He turns around and he presses the disciples a little bit more. So he asks them specifically, but you, who do you say that I am? Okay. And Simon Peter answers, you were the Messiah the son of the living God. Okay. What's Jesus' response? 
Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you were blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. What does Jesus say in the, to Simon? He's saying that you have had a revelation. You have looked into heaven and you have seen what is known in heaven. And it is now through you possible to bring that knowledge to earth. Does that make sense? So we look into heaven and we see what's there. And then we, we bring it here. Everyone okay with that? Okay. This next one I find interesting too. <clears throat> you notice the sentence before, it was Simon, right? Yeah. In this sentence, Jesus says, and I also say that you are Peter. Now, when does God tend to give people a new name? Would they have been born? Would they have been born again? Sometimes after good marriage. Right? We have a calling. But it's also a speaking of identity over you by the Father. So what Jesus is telling Peter at this point is, you've had a revelation from my Father. You've seen who I am. And that message is becoming part of your identity. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, forgive me again. My notes are not quite as clear as they should be. And then he says, And on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Now, it's not clear really what this refers to. It could refer to Peter, and in the Greek it's Petros, and the word Petros means rock or rocky outcrop or cliff or something of that nature in the Greek. So it could be a play on words. It could be that Jesus saying, on you I will build my church. But it also could be saying, this could be referring to the revelation that Peter had from the Father on who Jesus was. So Jesus could be saying on the revelation that I am the Son of God and that I am, that's where I'm going to build my church. Now, it's not clear from the text, but if we go a little bit further in the text, we will see, uh, nope, it's not, it's not where I want it to be. Okay, I'd, going backwards, don't have a slide for this one. But if we go to um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul writes, and all that drank the same spiritual, and, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So it seems at least Paul understood that the rock was Jesus. Now, are we all comfortable with that? Okay, and we go to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, and I think that's the one I have here. Yeah. 
According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it, but each one must be careful how he builds it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. So I think from those last two verses, we can be pretty sure that what Jesus was talking about for rock was the revelation that he was the Son of God. That make sense? Okay. And this next one is another one that's pretty interesting. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, and this is where the translations differ, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Now this is the HSCB I'm reading from. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now what did your translation say, Elaine? The verb is a, in the Greek is a little ambiguous to our 20th century understanding of what Greek was back then. And whenever you go from language to language, you have difficulty, particularly when words don't exactly translate. And how many know what four centuries has done to English? What do you think 20 centuries has done to Greek? So there is some ambiguity there. But if we, if we look farther on, um, would someone read me Matthew 6.10, please. And I think when you hear this, you'll recognize it. Everyone recognize that? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now go back and look at this 19, this um, verse we just looked at. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Isn't that saying what's in heaven bring to earth? Or your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Don't those fit really closely? Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. So what's Jesus saying? Based on the revelation of who Jesus is, we can look into heaven and bring to earth what already exists in heaven. Does that make sense? I'm getting a lot of nods. Does this, does this sound different than you've heard it before? Yeah. But yet it's what I see when I read it. I could be wrong. I'm not the world's authority. I am not the teacher. I'm just a pastor. God will reveal to you what he wants you to get out of it when you take it to him, so please do that. But this is the way I see it, that when Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is making the declaration here that when you're born again, when you have a revelation from the Father on who Jesus is, and you understand the reality that he can meet all your needs and he lives in you, then at that point you can release what's in heaven on earth. Does that seem to maybe be a critical mission of the church? Okay. So there's one place where Jesus uses the word church. The only other place he uses it is also in Matthew, 
It's Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. Uh, we did that one. And it's an eye chart again. Would someone be kind enough to read that for me? It's a passage we've all heard before, right? It's the only other place Jesus uses the word church. And he also, again, uses that cryptic phrase, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Pretty interesting that the only two times he uses the phrase church, he talks about binding and loosing on earth what is in heaven. Anyone find that a little bit curious? That he puts those two together? So in his mind, are they connected? Okay. A couple other interesting things. Uh, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Most translations I looked at, Jesus uses the word church twice. In the NRSV, he uses it four times. In the NRSV, where it says, if your brother sins against you, the NRSV says, if someone in your church sins against you. So Jesus is looking at the brother as someone in the ecclesia, which is someone who was born again, plugged into heaven for their needs, and will be accepted into heaven when they die. Now, it's not our job to judge who's going to heaven or not. That solely belongs to God. Jesus is pretty clear, particularly in the uh, parable of the wheat and the tear. Yeah. We don't separate, we don't pass judgment, we treat everyone as if they're, that's where they're going to go. And God will take care of the rest. For only God knows matters of the heart, right? right? All we can see is the outward expression of what goes on. We cannot know what the intention of the heart was. It's not given to us. We treat everyone as if they're gonna be there with us. Okay, <clears throat> but if they won't listen, take two or three witnesses, let's see, but if you won't listen, take one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. Now, when you take two or three, do you go tell them your side of the story first? There's a word for that. Bible's pretty clear on it, it's called gossip. When you take two or three, since we can't judge the human heart, we're taking two or three others with us to stand in judgment of which one of the two of us, me or my brother, has the hardness of heart going on here. Because if two of us differ, which one of us has the ability to know which one is the one who's got the hard heart? And if I build my political alliance and take with me people who I know are going to agree with me, am I following the word of the Lord? The answer is no. See, so you select two or three of the people, one or two others, so the two or three total, from the ecclesia or from the gathering of believers, and take them with you and talk to your brother. Everyone got that? It's not necessary to tell them what's about beforehand, because that way they may have prejudged. Just let them hear it there. And oh, by the way, what if they say, oh, your friend's right. You're the one with the hard heart. Is that possible? Yes. Okay. Um, let's see what we get next here. 
If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. And again, here's the word church. The Greek word is ekklesia. So you tell the gathering of believers, and you bring it to them. And if he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. How did Jesus treat unbelievers and tax collectors? Pardon? Mercy and love. I'm sorry? Yeah. Did he shun them or did he pursue them? Now, they were not part of the gathering of believers, so they didn't have the dependency on God to meet all the needs. And as a body, they didn't sell their belongings to take care of the people who weren't part of the body. So they weren't cared for by the church, but they were pursued by the church. Does that make sense? Because they are still God's child. And does God still love them? Okay. Um, I and here's that cryptic phrase again. I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, it's interesting, and I have seen no English translation that brings this out, but the word whatever. In the first section in Matthew 16, the word whatever is a type word or a class word. It's whatever with a type of thing connotation to it. So whatever you see in heaven, the type of thing you see in heaven is a type of thing you can release on earth. Does that make sense? Is that being clear? Okay. In Matthew 18, the word whatever is not a type word, but it's an amount word. Whatever amount or how much, it's a quantity word. English doesn't pick this up, but if you go to the lexicons and look in the Greek, you will see there's a different word under both of them. So really, what Jesus is saying to his church is, when you get a revelation from heaven, you have permission to release that here on earth. Depending on how you treat your fellow neighbors, your fellow humans, that determines how much of it you can release on earth. So was treating other people correctly important? That means you could have full revelation of everything known in heaven, but not treat people well, and you won't get to release very much. Now, doesn't that sound like Corinthians 13, the first three verses? One through three, one of them says, if I have all knowledge or wisdom, but have not love, I am nothing. Doesn't that support what's going on here? Okay. Um, again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Is it interesting that he says take one or two others, so there's two or three when you're discussing an issue with your brother? Is it interesting that he uses those same numbers right here, two or three? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, 
I am there among you. Now, <clears throat> what does this phrase, in my name, mean? Any clues? Anyone take a guess at it or anyone know? Does it simply mean to evoke the name of Jesus? Good, no. Culturally, in the Hebraic society that Jesus was part of, about the time a son was 30, he was taken to the public square by his father, and a declaration was made. And the father really said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and from this point forward, whatever he says, take it as if I said it. He speaks for me. So the full weight of the father's business, reputation, resources was being committed to the son because the father at this point had total trust in the son to administer the father's business. Does that make sense? So that's really what it means to do business in the name of someone or in my name. Look at the baptism of Jesus. When John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and he goes under the water, he comes up, and what happens? Heaven's torn open, right? The Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and the Father speaks. And what does the Father say? It's the same thing that Jewish or Hebraic society did. The father did for the son when he said, he speaks in my name. So it's not a matter of invoking the name of Jesus. And a lot of people are frustrated that because they say, I said it in Jesus' name and it didn't happen. It really comes down to what would Jesus have done in that time at that place? Or, and this might have some bite to it, and please don't let it. At the moment you're doing something, are you representing the heart of the Father, or are you an agent for darkness? And that might have some sting to it. But every one of us has choices to make all day long, and on every choice we make, we're going to come down on one side or the other of that question. Am I properly representing heaven? Am I an ambassador of the Father's heart? Am I an ambassador of love? Or am I not? And if I'm not, I'm representing the world's view, not heaven's view. And doesn't the Bible say that heaven's view is going to seem like folly to the world? Isn't that a direct quote? So if we go with what we've learned from our umbilical cord being plugged into the world, if we go with what we still need to get from the world, who might we be representing? That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? If we go with our umbilical cord plugged into heaven and God meeting all our needs and we understanding that God is love and that all that should flow through us is love, who will we be representing? And it's in that second case that we're doing something in the name of Jesus. Anyone, that, that makes sense? Okay. So the one question you should ask yourself before you respond to any circumstances that the world 
comes up with is, is my response representing the love of the Father? Or is my response defending me? Because those two, as far as I can see it, are mutually exclusive. Did Jesus spend much time defending himself? No. Nope. He spent his time representing the heart of the Father. And Jesus is the only real picture of God in the Bible. He says, well, I've, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Shouldn't we be able to, if, if we are truly born-again believers plugged into heaven and understand the love of the Father, shouldn't we be able to look at people and say, when you see me, you've seen Jesus? Now, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, so and don't tell you you should be like me because I blow it a lot. And I know, if we're honest, we all do. And that's okay. It was interesting that when Jesus was asked, the greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one was love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't say perfectly love your neighbor. Learning to love the way God did is a journey. It's a process. The more we go through the Bible and learn who God is, the more we go through the Bible and learn who Jesus is, guess what? We're learning who we are because Jesus is in us. So the heart of the Father is the heart that was given to us, and we have the mind of Christ. The Bible says that, right? What gets in the way is what we learn through that umbilical cord plugged into the world. So we have to unlearn it and plug it into heaven. But at that point, we are capable of representing the Father's heart to those around us. And the dark and dying world longs for the love of the Father. And when they see that, they won't understand it, but they cannot resist it. It's like a bug drawn to the light. They will come to you and they will want to know what you've got. They will want to know why the flat tire didn't make you mad. They will want to know why the guy who cuts you off in traffic doesn't rattle your cage. They will want to know when you're sitting in 95 trying to get back from D.C. on a Friday night and you've got two hours to get there and it's obviously a four-hour trip with the traffic. They'll want to know why you're in your car smiling and praising God instead of cursing at anyone around you. But that's the representation of the Father's heart. We cool so far? So, and I'm way off my notes, I'm sorry. Uh, so what did Jesus expect from the church? Going through these passages and looking at it, what does Jesus want? And let's look at Ephesians, if you get your Bibles, look at Ephesians 3.10. If I got that one in there. Is that the, yeah. So when the purpose of the church, this is so God's multi-faced wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Interesting. Doesn't this say that God is using his church to show the heavens what God's wisdom is like? What are the heavens? What's in the heavens? Angels. I'm sorry, John? Yeah, sun, moon, and stars. Look at Ephesians 6.12. 
And everyone, I think, has heard this one. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. So far, we're looking like the previous verse, right? Against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Everyone ever consider that there are forces of evil in the heavens? So when we're saying in Ephesians 10, one of the expectations of the church is, this is so that God's multi-phase wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heaven. Jesus isn't just saying the angels, but he's saying the fallen angels as well. God is using his church to teach heaven what love is like. Is that an eye-opener? Is that what this says? Now again, take this to God and see what he tells you. But this is the thing he sort of swayed me on a little bit different this morning was what he wanted us to understand is we are the crown of his creation. He created the angels. People have told me through the years that angels don't have free will. But that can't be true if a third of them chose to follow Satan. They must have had free will. God didn't breathe into angels the breath of life. God didn't breathe into angels the Holy Spirit. It says that in Revelations. I forget exactly the verse, but John in his dream in Revelations falls down in front of an angel, and the angel says, uh-uh, no, not me. I'm just like you. I'm just a created being. Holy Spirit fills us, Jesus fills us. We are what instructs heaven, what God's love is like. Is that an awesome responsibility? Think about that. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got on that. So to close this, what I want you to do and this is a challenge, but take what you've heard today, take it to God. You were all uniquely and purposely made for God's purpose, for good works. The Bible's pretty clear on that. We have all learned defenses through the world that get between us and what God wanted us to be. But take it to God and ask him, who am I? Where do I properly represent your heart? Where am I called to? And frankly, there are some of us that are not called to represent his heart in certain areas. I mean, we all have a calling. We're all going to do better in certain areas. But find out what yours is. And that is the gift you bring to this dark and dying world. Can we effectively be the church in here? And the answer is no. This is where we come to learn what God wants us to be. This is where we come to deliberate, to debate, to learn, to take to God and see what he's got, to bring back to the ecclesia and let, let us know what you hear from God. God does not just work through pastors. God works through everyone and everyone's input from God, particularly if it's a revelation, is important. Teaching talks to the mind, right? But if you share revelation from the heart, you go right into the heart of the other person. 
and something else the Western world gets wrong. We think we lead with our head, and our head is supposed to teach our heart. But how often does God talk about the heart of man versus how often does he talk about the mind? In the kingdom of heaven, the heart leads. It's the filters on the heart that prevent words of, from God getting to our mind, getting to, the, to us so we can express them. What filters have you learned to put around your heart? How have you learned to defend your heart? And when you ask God those questions, he will show you what's blocking you from a full revelation of who he is and what's blocking you from a full revelation of what we should be out bringing to the rest of the world. Does that make sense? So the challenge is take this to God and see what it is he wishes to do with us and what unique thing we have to bring to the dark and dying world. Because the world out there needs the light. They don't need head knowledge of who God is. They need to get the revelation in their heart of who God is, who Jesus is. And the only way we can do that is as Jesus did. Love them, teach them, honor them, and let them choose. As soon as we try to control or manipulate anyone, we've lost them because that's what the world does. What did Jesus say when, um, and I forget which two disciples, the brothers were debating on which one was the greatest and they wanted to be at the right and left hand as Jesus was in heaven, so these couple brave kids had their mother go talk to Jesus. I thought that was classic. <clears throat> and what does Jesus say? The Gentiles exercise authority and lord over their people. It shall not be with you. Is that pretty much what it says? And I can't pull, I don't know the verse, so I can't pull it up to check this one out. Whoever wants to be first among you shall be servant, and whoever wants to be greatest shall be slave to all. So instead of the world's view of I'm boss, I'm cool, I'm on top of the pile, if you want to be boss and cool, you're under here. You're causing other people to be everything they were designed to be and trying to get everyone you know to be better than you are. Because the glory doesn't come from me being good. The glory comes from you being good. The glory comes from us going out to the world and showing the world what trust in the Father looks like what it looks like to live a life that says, Daddy's got it, I don't have to worry. There's plenty at the Father's table, I don't have to get mine before you get yours. Now isn't that the world's way? You talk about an orphan mindset. If you're in an orphanage, what do they say? If there's uh, three pieces of chicken left on the plate and the lights go out, don't reach, why? You're gonna get a fork in the back of your hand? <laughs> Everyone's diving for the last piece? But in God's economy, there's no shortage. So we can see that everybody else gets theirs first because we know that when we come to the table, Daddy will take care of us. That make sense? Okay. Sorry I went on so long on this. I'm going to get off the soapbox. Um, I hope this made sense. I hope this is talking to someone because I believe it's where the Spirit wanted us to go. So let's go to the Lord. and be, Before we do communion, and Mark's trying to lead us through communion, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for sending your son. 
We thank you for giving us signposts. We thank you for giving us touchstones. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for choosing to work through broken vessels like us. There is no other God like you. We don't need to attain perfection to bring people into your family. All we need to do is learn to trust you. And Father, we know it's a process. It's like peeling an onion, and you'll give us one layer that we can handle. And you'll turn around, and when we're set and we're stable again, you'll give us the next layer. And when we're set and stable, you'll give us the next layer. But having those places in our heart that are still plugged into the world does not disqualify us from showing the love of the Father to everyone in the world. Because no matter who we are, we have you in us. And we can properly represent heaven on earth. And when we see into heaven, we can bring heaven to earth. So, Father, we just come in awe and admiration to you. And thank you for loving us. And the ecclesia said...